Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Silcox. In this week's edition of Insight, we ask if there's a secret feline focus within the industry, with talk of catastrophes and perfect conditions for cyber risks. Australian business has finally woken up to cyber risks, before I had a chance to reapply its makeup, and it's a scary sight. The ICA has declared another weather-based catastrophe, and we wonder if it has anything to do with COP26. And international travel is back, but with echoes of Borat's Mankini, we wonder how much will be covered. Hello, everyone. On that last visual, the panel today are a nauseous managing editor, John Deeks, a deputy editor, Wendy Pugh, and chairman, Terry McMullen. Good morning, Terry. Did you have a win yesterday? I did. I did. Extremely well. Yes. Yes. One, two, and three in the cup. So very pleased with myself. Excellent. So if anyone listeners want to get in touch with uh, Terry, he's happy to share his winnings or or perhaps his uh, tipping advice. <laughs> Hello, John. Hello. You were covering all the stories with Wendy yesterday, weren't you? Yes, that's right. Far too busy to, to worry about horse racing when we got uh, insurance news to report. <laughs> all right. And good morning, Wendy. Good morning. Well, you were busy, but did John give you some hot cup tips? Well, he didn't. I, I, I wish he had because I followed my own and they weren't very successful. <laughs> Well, speak to Terry. Speak to Terry. Clearly, that's, uh, that's what we, we can all learn from this pod. All right. Well, on to this week's main stories. Cyber insurance seems to be a flavor of the month at the moment, John. Why is there so much talk about cyber risks right now? Well, simply because uh, they're developing into a very problematic area. As we said before, ransomware claims have rocketed making insurers wary and forcing rates up. The message to businesses for the last few years has been, make sure you have cyber cover. But now it might not be so easy with insurers only prepared to offer cover if a client has proper risk management in place. Our analysis this week focuses on Aon's biennial risk survey, which puts cyber at the top of the list for the first time, outstripping things like climate change and COVID. And the scariest thing of all might be that Aon says, even though it's been ranked as the biggest risk, the industry is still underestimating the cyber threat. It was mentioned in Marsh's latest commercial pricing index as well, wasn't it? Yes, it was. So the Marsh index says that while prices in this hard market are continuing to rise, they are slowing down. But that isn't the case for cyber, which continues to diverge from the moderation trend in both local and global markets. Cyber premiums increased dramatically, Marsh says, while capacity shrunk and many programs were unable to purchase historical limits. Well, Terry, on Marsh's uh, pricing index, what would be the top of your risk list? Well, I'm certainly not in the same mindset as, as Aon from their recent report, where they, they said that um, cyber was, was the, the most important risk they faced. In, in, in economic and insurance terms, cyber is a massive challenge, but I don't think it's insurmountable. The impact and the cost to people and industries, I think, are eventually going to force rather more concerted government action to deter them. Or we'll see new technologies being developed to guard against them or even repel them. For me, the top of the list remains climate change. In contrast to cyber's economic risks, climate change is an existential risk. What's an existential risk? We all die, Andrew. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's quite a risk. <laughs> Well, on uh, Terry's existential risks, Wendy, the wild spring weather has continued and the Insurance Council has declared another catastrophe. Well, South Australia was uh, hit first by um, the hail and strong winds last week and then the same storm system brought those really severe winds to Victoria, which caused trees to you know, topple over all over the place. 
So the ICA first declared a catastrophe for South Australia on Friday um, and then on uh, Monday they widened that to uh, include Victoria and Tasmania. But there, there hasn't been an overall losses estimate yet, but uh, there has been, um, as of Monday, there are about 36,000 claims combined for Victoria and South Australia and um, that number is obviously uh, still going to be rising. Well, call me ignorant, and you often do, but what does declaring a catastrophe do? Well, it's meant to um, give priority to to those sort of claims and uh, facilitate extra resources being made available to to attend to them. So it's sort of like an all-hands-on-deck sort of call so that you can handle a big event as efficiently as possible and, you know, and people have, there's a helpline that people can call and it it just aims to sort of muster everybody together when you have a really huge event. So does that mean that if the ICA don't declare a catastrophe, the insurers don't take as much notice? Hopefully not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Suncorp has given an indication of the cumulative impact of lots of smaller events, haven't they? Last Tuesday, and this was before that storm's catastrophe hit, they put out an update on hazards costs for the period from July 1 to October 24. So at that point, they estimated the total natural hazards costs at 382 to 492 million which compares to a December half expectation of 490 million. So obviously, you know, that, that 382 to 490 is going to be bumped up now. Um, and then since then, since that ICA catastrophe declaration, uh, IAG has also put an, out an update and they've said they've now raised their full-year um, natural perils claims cost estimate to um, just over a billion dollars. So they've increased it from $765 million, which was um, already a big, big jump up from last year. So there's been this pattern of these disaster claims uh, costs exceeding um, initial forecasts in recent years. If insurers' natural peril cost estimates keep getting overtaken, does that indicate a new normal for climate losses, Terry? Well, the, the simple answer is yes. Climate change is increasing the frequency and the severity of cyclones, bushfires, floods, droughts, hailstorms, and so on. So we have to also accept that insurers are going to be paying out more for claims than they than they have previously. And um, while we're seeing technical pricing increasingly being imposed and a very low appetite for risk dominating the commercial side of insurance right now, the complexities of setting premiums and personal lines is like another country. There's not much differentiation in products, so pricing's always been one of the few ways insurers can gain a competitive edge. But the reality now is simple enough. Natural perils are rising in number and cost with no end in sight, and insurers really don't have the income to play around with with lower prices. So personal lines premiums are going to have to keep pace with claims costs. So if we agree that that increasing losses from climate change-related costs are becoming the new normal, then rising premiums should be the new normal too. Well, that sounds less like an existential risk and more like an essential risk. Does that mean the industry should be more involved in the climate debate? Well, I think it's it's pretty involved in the climate debate. Not necessarily. I I think we tend to look at it on the local level. And I think uh, companies, certainly Suncorp and IAG, have been leaders in pushing their concerns to to governments. And internationally, we've seen the the reinsurers fighting the whole issue for many years. I think the the reality is that it, it 
eventually we're going to get to a, a breaking point where governments are going to have to accept that, that maybe it's not really all about coal mines. You really, if you want to have a functioning society that is secure, you are going to have to be a lot more active. Well, in other news, international travel is back, and that's good news for travel insurers, isn't it, John? Well, it has to be, doesn't it? I think uh, travel insurance sales have been close to zero for a while. I guess there have been some domestic travel insurance policies sold and probably a few international ones too, with people legally leaving the country for, for various reasons. But really, it's been a tough old time. Um, but with borders opening up, you would expect to see a recovery. And risk awareness and the importance of travel insurance is surely top of tourists' minds. The Insurance Council says cover is available and it's as essential as a passport. So I'm planning on a uh, holiday to Phillip Island. Will I be covered for COVID or not? I don't know about Phillip Island, but uh, if you were travelling internationally, the best answer, of course, I guess, is always check the PDS. But yes, some insurers are offering cover for some aspects of COVID, such as if you become ill overseas and need hospital care, or if a COVID diagnosis causes a cancellation. But I'm not aware of any insurers that will cover border closures or lockdowns. So if Australia suddenly decides that travel is off the cards again, or your home region goes into a snap lockdown and you can't travel, then you could be out of luck. But of course, it is also worth remembering that insurers will only pay out if you've suffered a genuine loss. So if you're able to get a refund or credit on your cancelled flight or accommodation, then you wouldn't have been able to claim on the insurance anyway. I think the message is probably get insurance, but also book with uh, flexible providers. Do you think insurers will continue to cover COVID-related disruptions, Terry? Or could it prove too expensive in the long term? Well, in, in reality, insurers didn't intend to cover much of anything associated with pandemics, and you can now see why. But experience tells us that if new risks can be understood and measured, and cyber is an example of that as well, um, insurers will work out ways to cover them. That's really what the insurance industry is here for. Well, now we talk a lot about homeowners in flood zones facing horrendous insurance premiums. But is enough thought given to those issues before properties are bought? Wendy, you've analysed a new report which goes into the detail about this, haven't you? Some research released by Suncorp found a fifth of the people surveyed didn't consider potential natural disaster risks as part of their thinking if they were considering moving from cities to rural or coastal areas. So this survey was done in a context where a lot of people were looking at a sea change or a tree change amid the COVID pandemic. Uh, but for many people, natural catastrophes just didn't factor into their thinking at all, whether it was deciding either on the location or the type of home to live in. Well, the uh, Aussie attitude of she'll be right, mate, seems to be alive and well, Terry, despite all the coverage these issues are getting. Yeah, that's an unfortunate fact of insurance life, Andrew. It's always been that way. People don't worry about locking windows and doors until they're burgled, and they don't worry about buying a property in a flood zone until they're flooded. As one insurer once put it to me, the thrill of buying a property outweighs the chill of, of researching the risks. Fact is, it, it's like when you, you find see a property you really want uh, and it's desirable sitting in the middle of a flood zone, then it's just like, oh, you know, it's not very near a school, but that doesn't matter. It suddenly goes, well, it doesn't flood all the time. So 
as high as premiums in such zones may be, uh, that's what ensuring your, your financial security costs. The real solution, of course, is to move somewhere somewhere else. Well, finally, Vero in New Zealand is dropping gender from its underwriting calculations. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but John, can you tell us about this one? Uh, yes, I can. So I'll try and explain. When insurers are pricing your risk, when you apply for motor insurance, they'll take a range of factors into account. And one of those might be gender. So Vero New Zealand says that historically, comparing data for male and female customers has provided valuable insights, especially when combined with age. Uh, And I guess young men might be seen as a heightened risk, for example. But Vero says New Zealanders don't just fit into those male and female boxes anymore. And rather than try to price a more diverse gender spectrum, it's decided to remove gender entirely from its motor underwriting process. This could take up to 18 months, it says, because it wants to do it gradually to avoid sudden premium changes that customers are not prepared for. Is it right for insurers to base pricing on things like gender, Terry? Especially in this age of he, her, she, him ambiguity? Look, this is, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I am a great supporter of this kind of initiative in terms of removing gender-specific definitions because that's the way that society is moving in. Fair enough. Look, if gender is relevant to the risk, then discrimination could well be inevitable in insurance, but it's a perfectly fair consequence. And auto insurance is actually the real best example of that. Any vehicle insurer can show you that female drivers in the 21 to 25 year age group are far less likely to have an accident than their male counterparts. So women in that age group normally pay less for their insurance than males. Hey, and that's backed up by neuroscientists who've found the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain which apparently helps to curb impulsive behavior isn't fully developed in males until the age of 25. But in women, that part of the brain is fully in action by the age of 21. So to put it kindly, we males take longer to mature. Apparently, women have known about this for a very long time. Um, So why put two different risk groups in one underwriting basket, which is what Vero New Zealand wants to do? It says it's going to smooth pricing differences so they don't create any sudden premium changes. But I don't really know how they'll be able to demonstrate that young female drivers aren't being disadvantaged after being lumped in with crash-prone men with underdeveloped brains. This smoothing of pricing differences in an enlarged risk pool could well result in male drivers paying less and female drivers paying more. And if that happens, those women could claim to have been discriminated against. So I just think New Zealand, uh, Vero New Zealand has decided that oh, that's all less relevant than the need to keep pace with societal changes in regard to gender. So well done, Vero, and good luck. And on that note, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, John Deeks, Wendy Pugh, and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week, and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.